0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode of the podcast, we are wrapping up our series on the book of Daniel. And coming up, we will be doing a series on birth narratives in the scriptures, followed by a series on the book of James. As always, we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes, specifically our YouTube channel. We are right now wrapping up our series on the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lighthart, and we think you will find it very useful. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this retrospective on this book. And here are Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing the book of Daniel.
1: Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is finishing up a sabbatical from his pastoral responsibilities and uh, is spending some time at the beach and uh, will rejoin us once he's all revved up and rested up. What we have coming up in the next uh, couple of months, we're planning uh, an Advent series. We're going to be looking at various birth stories in the Bible uh, that are types. Foreshadowings of the birth story of Jesus, so we'll be looking for some of the birth, looking at some of the birth stories, particularly in the Book of Genesis. There are a lot of birth stories. Once we start listing them out, uh, we realize that there are way too many to cover during a reasonable, reasonable Christmas season. So we'll do that this year, and then perhaps return to uh, cover some other birth stories next Advent. Uh, but that's coming up, and then uh, uh, in the uh, somewhat uh, mid-range future, uh, we're going to be going through the Epistle of James. Uh, Jeff Myers has a long-awaited commentary on James. He's been spending his sabbatical finishing up that commentary, uh, but uh, in order to anticipate the release of that book and, uh, and to discuss it with him, uh, get some of his insights, he's been teaching on it for years and has some some great insights into the into the letter of James. So we'll be covering that uh, sometime in the early part of 2022. I should also mention that uh, Brian Motes is with us. Uh, Brian, as usual, is helping us uh, get everything recorded. He'll be editing and smoothing everything out and uh, grateful for Brian's continuing contributions to our podcast. Uh, We're coming to the end of our series in the book of Daniel. Uh, We've been looking at prophetic literature for some months and specifically focusing on the book of Daniel for the last several months. Uh, And we completed uh, Daniel chapter 12 in the last episode. So uh, what we're planning to do during this episode is just talk about some of our highlights, things we learned or Things that became clearer to us during the course of our uh, studies together, questions that remain about the book of Daniel, things that we want to explore further, and so on. I'll start with one thing that I, I noticed as we went through the early chapters of Daniel. There are three sequential chapters about Nebuch- where Nebuchadnezzar is the principal character. There's uh, chapters two through four, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which Daniel comes and interprets, and then Daniel is elevated. Then Nebuchadnezzar builds this image and commands everyone to bow down on pain of death. That's in chapter three. And then in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar has this another dream of himself as a an imperial tree that's cut down. And again, Daniel interprets that for him. But Nebuchadnezzar goes through this experience of being reduced to bestial status. And then he's elevated again, recovers his senses uh, when he humbles himself before the Lord and uh, becomes uh, again becomes a man. Uh, I, I hadn't recognized that those chapters as a, as a sequence previously. And it's something that we noticed, I noticed as we were going through those chapters early on in our studies in Daniel, that in some ways it looks like uh, Nebuchadnezzar is um, it's fits and starts. And there's some of that, some of that going on. He, he seems to come to some kind of insight and then he he has a slide back he comes to some kind of insight again and he has another slide back. Uh, but it's also, I think a, it's a sequence of, it's kind of a more linear sequence of events in Nebuchadnezzar's experience. Uh, he does homage to Daniel at the end of chapter 2, and he announces that Daniel's God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. He acknowledges Daniel's God, but not with the same kind of oomph, the same kind of power, and uh, uh, the, the way that he announces at the end of chapter 4, uh, He, when his reason returns to him, he blesses the Most High, Uh, says that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He does as he wills in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. So there's this gradual recognition in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's part of exactly who he's dealing with. Uh, From chapter two on, when Daniel first reveals the dream to him, he realizes that this God is special and Daniel is special because he has the spirit of this God in him. Uh, Yahweh is special because he can reveal mysteries but not until he comes to the end of that sequence do we have something like a full uh, confession of the primacy and the preeminence of Yahweh. Uh, that sequence was, sequence was interesting, That I, something I hadn't noticed before. And I, that raises a larger question, Daniel, that uh, I think is worth repeating. There's been a lot of talk about the church today being in kind of an exilic situation, taking the letter of uh, Jeremiah 29 as a kind of paradigm for Christian activity in the secular West. Believers are in many countries, uh, active believers, I should say, are in many countries a minority. Uh, and uh, we were called to uh, settle in, to uh, seek the peace of the city, to have children, to expand. But sometimes that's seen as kind of a, a renunciation of power, of a political power uh, but but Daniel brings out, as as other books do in that are written about the exilic period, Daniel brings out very clearly that even though Israel is in exile, God keeps raising up Israelites, Jews, to prominent positions in the empires, uh, and I think that's an important dimension of exilic life. If if the church is in a position of, of being in exile today in various places in the world, it's not just a matter of Toughing it out and being a a powerless minority, but we can expect that the Lord is going to uh, elevate Daniel's and uh, Shadrach, Meshach's and Abednego's and Nehemiah's and Esther's and and Mordecai's and going to put people in positions of authority, which will provide protection for potentially beleaguered minorities of Christians, uh, and also, as Daniel shows, um, have an effect on the. Direction of rule, Nebuchadnezzar is the is the emperor, uh, and he ends up acknowledging Yahweh, and that's something I think we as believers should expect. Even though we seem to be powerless in certain situations, God is placing people in high places, and uh, He does humble the humble the proud, uh, and He brings rulers to recognize that there's a high king that they need to that they need to acknowledge.
2: Those broader themes of sovereignty have also really come out anew to me reading through the book of Daniel again over the last few months, thinking particularly about the importance of the background story of Babel and the way in which the same themes are at work here. You start off in the plains of Shinar and then Israel is brought back to the very beginning of its story, to the context from which and the background against which Abraham was first called. And in that context, there was the judgment of the nations, the hubris of empire of Nimrod and other people who are seeking to build this great tower to heaven, and also a city that was comprehensive gathering everyone in. And all of those themes are playing out in the book of Daniel. And often I think in scripture, we can be reading biblical texts and have a sense that there is some sort of counter melody to go with their melody something against which a deeper harmony will be revealed and in the case of Daniel that has really the force of the story of Babel has really come home to me And things like the great towers so you have the the image of chapter two in the dream and then the image the idolatrous image in chapter three the golden image and in chapter four the The great tree and then the confusion of languages um, in the judgment of belshazzar's feast and then all of that leading up to the fact that the sovereignty is going to be given to the son of man and the saints are going to inherit the kingdom and that continues to be a theme not just in the core aramaic sections of the book but going on towards the real end as we've studied to the end of the 12th chapter those themes are still at play. The question is, who's going to inherit this authority over the whole world? And all of this is returning Israel to that foundational narrative, to the narrative of their call, and the backdrop for that. And when they reconsider that backdrop in the situation where it seems like everything has been lost, they've been returned to square one, we're actually seeing that prophecy come to fulfilment. And the Lord's sovereignty of the nations being expressed in a far more direct way than they might have experienced hitherto and when those stories are hung together in terms of that larger background narrative i think a coherent argument of the book becomes much more apparent this is all about that great question all about the themes of the story of babel and all about the way in which the purpose of the calling of Abraham is actually going to come to its fruition.
3: Something that's struck me, and I wondered if we could t- talk over it a little bit, is just the way in which Daniel um, is interested in and portrays empires. That seems to be a, an ongoing theme of almost every chapter of Daniel's writings. And it feels to me that Daniel's portrayal of empire isn't just simplistic or, or one-dimensional. There are there whole array of sort of different streams and different directions of of travel under the surface of what Daniel sees, both in his visions and what Daniel experiences. And one strand of that might be a a tendency to um, totalitarianism and a a desire to kind of stamp out um, genuine diversity of of thought that we see in sort of chapter um, three. A couple of more strands might be these kind of uh, directions of travel where empires get kind of stronger in some senses and weaker in other senses at at the same time. So there's all that going on. But at the same time, um, empires are things which can be worked with. And so in chapter one, for instance, Daniel gets given a diet, which is going to defile him. And, you know, he doesn't just storm up to his overseer and, and says, you know, Cursed be ye, I, I will not eat your defiled food. You know, he, he works with this um, person and puts a, a plan of action together where um, both the empire and Daniel and, and his fellow men can be benefited. You know, they, they come up with a situation where he can be productive and, and not defile himself, more productive, in fact. And and so Daniel gets what he wants and the Babylonians get what they want. They get more more productive uh, people. And so... um. Uh, at the same time, in chapter three, there's a time when empires can be influenced by defiance because the Hebrews' refusal to bow um, results in a law which kind of protects their religious liberty in, in many ways. So, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in uh, hearing your, your thoughts on this. It, it feels to me there's a, um, uh, a very sort of nuanced and careful picture of empire in the book.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, and it, it goes contrary to what you find in a lot of contemporary scholarship, biblical scholarship on empire, um, which is almost uniformly hostile to empire in any form. And I think you, I think in the Bible, you do have to make distinctions among different sorts of empire. I mean, the, the go-to image for the anti-imperial scholarship is uh, the empire's beast in the, in the book of Revelation, which is, which is certainly the case. Uh, and it's empire's beast. I think that the distinguishing mark of that in Revelation is its attack on the saints. I mean, there are other, obviously, there are other political features of a of a t- uh, tyrannical empire. But I think the 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 standard of dis- the standard of classification or the distinction that's made is that uh, it becomes it becomes a beast. The Roman Empire becomes a beast when it begins to attack the saints and uh, and uh, trample them down. So you have that on the one hand. You also have the empires that you're describing in Daniel, which are different different sorts of empires, they have their uh, flaws and sometimes their idolatries. But uh, they're it's possible to work within them, as you say. They're, they're uh, reiterations of Babel, as Alistair was saying. Uh, and you also have, uh, I mean, initially at least, the Babylonian Empire, uh, the Neo Babylonian Empire with Nebuchadnezzar, is described in in Jeremiah, for example, as uh, it's God's own arrangement. He's the Lord has given nations and all the beasts of the earth into the hands of nebuchadnezzar uh, isaiah describes uh, cyrus as a uh, an anointed one he's kind of a new david figure and i think that's the in my commentary on chronicles i argue that that's kind of the trajectory of chronicles too you have a kind of recapitulation of the history of israel through the book of chronicles ending ending where you expect to see a new david and what you see instead is a is a is cyrus uh, he's the anointed figure, he's the servant, he's the one who's going to rebuild Jerusalem, he's going to rebuild the temple. And so you have a different kind of imperial power that's actually uh, supporting and defending, defending Israel. Uh, so yeah. I think, and that, that's the, in, in certain respects, and you never have, none of these, none of these, uh, these ideal types don't exist in reality in its kind of pure form. But it's, uh, that kind of empire is what you have in, for example, in the late Roman Empire after, after Constantine. It's an empire, still has all kinds of flaws and brutalities that are part of it, but it's an empire that is, acknowledges, officially acknowledges uh, the true God and also um, provides protection uh, and, uh, and benefits to the church. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right that there's, you have to, speaking of empire in the singular uh, and condemning empire as in Toto, just uh, I don't think that's a biblical perspective on it. I should say that one of my favorite uh, chapters that we talked about, uh, one of the, my favorite discussions was on chapter three. That's the the, the fiery furnace. Uh, and there are a number of things that I, uh, I jotted down at the time and uh, looked back at my notes and was remembering. Um, James uh, mentioned the uh, uh, interesting fact that you have uh, the, the, just the, the language of the chapter is interesting, especially in this uh, uh, frequently repeated list of musical instruments. When the musical instruments are playing, then everyone's supposed to bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Um, but the, the the words that are used uh, include loan words from different places, so you have a kind of empire in sound uh, that uh, that represents musically represents the babylonian empire and when this empire and sound happens uh, the whole people is supposed to bow down to this image of gold so you have, and it you have a kind of liturgical overtone obviously um i mean Al- alistair also pointed out the the fact that the punishment is a fire is in a furnace of fire not just being thrown into the fire but being thrown into a furnace uh where you know that, that's your that's where you uh you meld things together you you throw people into a furnace when you want to into the melting pot to make them one people out of many people, uh, but you have these unmelted uh, Hebrews who refuse to bow uh, and don't join in with the with this uh, multinational band, this multinational orchestra that's playing. So all all that setup is is was an intriguing to me. The other thing that's intriguing is the development of their opposition because they move from this just refusing to bow to the image, but they don't get away with just a passive or uh, a private refusal because their enemies are on the lookout for them uh, and spot them refusing to bow and bring them before the King. Uh, and so you move from this uh, kind of private act of, act of defiance and it's brought into a court setting where they're, um, they're given the opportunity, you know, uh, being dragged before a King or a governor is always an opportunity for testimony, which is what they do. They testify to the to the power of God, and they uh, respectfully defy Nebuchadnezzar, which just empties his power completely. He's, uh, one commentary I looked at at the time we looked at this uh, says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is emasculated by their opposition. Uh, he threatens. They they don't beg. Uh, they they're not afraid. Uh, they don't negotiate. They don't accept some kind of. Uh, uh, some kind of compromise solution they just say we're not going to do it uh and um you know if you throw us in the furnace um, god might rescue us god might not but it doesn't matter we're not going to do it anyway because uh, god prohibits it and uh when you have a uh, witnesses of that sort then you uh you know a tyrannical power just has no uh no foothold and and uh that's uh again ends with nebuchadnezzar's declaration as uh as james mentioned it ends with the declaration about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and uh, decrees that they will be protected in their worship of their God. So uh, again, you see the kind of fragility of power, looks like massive power, but the fragility of power in
3: the face of faithful and uh, courageous witness. Yeah, I was very struck when we looked at chapter three uh, by Alistair's comment that you mentioned that um, the idea of a furnace in the background is precisely something that melts and molds together and and removes differences and of course all that comes on the backdrop of chapter two's um statue which ends with these unmixable things with this clay and iron and so even as the statue gets stronger and moves from gold to silver and bronze to iron it 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 gets weaker you know and, and clay comes in and the metals become less pure and and so on and it just reminds me of the the way in which kind of a um, a genuine diversity is something which many kingdoms f- fail to accommodate and are are threatened by, I, I suppose, in 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 some way. Superficial diversity is is easy to handle, you know. Um, it reminds me of the start of um, Esther, where there's this great feast portrayed, and it uses a, a rather sort of colorful phrase where each vessel is different from the other and there's all this lavish stuff going on and the the empire is kind of rejoicing in its diversity as it were but then um, there uh, emerges a people whose laws are, are different from the other people's and it's, it's a very very similar phrase that's used there and and that's a diversity which it seems from persia's point of view can't be tolerated and um it, it just feels to me that there's, there's a very similar thing going on in in Uh, chapter three and and elsewhere in the old testament which is hugely contemporary you know um, we've got a society which in many respects wants a a superficial diversity um, rather than a a things like a diversity in thoughts and um, actually in some senses the church can be little better um, in in that regard you know there can be very little tolerance of Diversity in thought within the church, too. And I think that's something to watch out for. When reading through the
2: story of Daniel, I think another issue that has really become more prominent in my thinking over this last period has been the way that Daniel can represent the people. Daniel stands as one who can speak for the people, for instance, in his prayer on their behalf in chapter nine. He's one who represents the people in a sort of symbolic way. For instance, in the story of the lion's den, he is cast into the lion's den and then delivered in a way that parallels the deliverance of um, Judah from the lion's den of Babylon. And then elsewhere, particularly in the final vision, there are a number of occasions where we noted, for instance, Daniel's falling down and rising up Corresponding with the falling down and rising up of the people themselves. And it seems to me there's something about the role of the prophet more generally, where the prophet represents, speaks for, but also can symbolically stand for the people in a way that we can see in a positive and negative sense too. You can think about the story of Abraham, where Abraham plays out in advance much of the story of his descendants, or in the way that Christ recapitulates the whole story of Israel but then also in negative senses in for instance the story of Jonah which we look through where Jonah can stand for the unfaithful prophet of Israel who is cast who endangers the other um, pagan nations round about because of its unfaithfulness gets thrown into the deep of exile but then the Lord prepares this um, sea monster to swallow them up and That role of the prophet has always struck me as one that, in its positive senses, should be something that we're all aspiring to. We're all to be those who condense within ourselves the identity and the calling of the church more generally. And this is something that I think we see within scripture, the way that things that are spoken of the church can be applied to the individual too. Um, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but so also is the body of the individual Christian. And that expression of the, of the individual Israelite as a sort of, maybe to borrow some language from Mike Bull here, there's a sort of fractal identity. You have the larger identity of the people, but if you zoom in, in each individual, you can, when the people fulfill this prophetic identity, they become little seeds of the larger identity of the great tree of the nation.
1: Yeah, that was on my list too as something that uh, I, hadn't, I, I hadn't noticed as forcefully uh, before. Daniel, Daniel's own role as a representative of the people and uh, Daniel's role as, as an interpreter, as a wise man, a sage that, in, that uh, unravels knots and solves riddles and so on. Uh, I was going to also bring up, but uh, Daniel six was another passage that I was struck by. This is uh, the the lion's den, and what uh, what came out to me. I think it was it was uh, uh, sparked by a comment that James made at the time about the way that the decree of uh, Darius eludes his control. He he makes a uh, makes a declaration. But then the declaration has consequences that he hadn't foreseen. You know, he d- he didn't intend to get Daniel in trouble. Perhaps was completely ignorant of Daniel's practices of prayer. Perhaps he didn't even intend for private prayer to be prohibited. And you know we we talked about the what what exactly is being what what exactly is being uh, forbidden by his decree that no one pray to any god or man but him. That was that a prohibition of public acts of obeisance in some kind of temple setting was it you know was it actually prohibiting what daniel said but whatever uh, darius's intentions there are other actors involved who pick up the law and use it contrary to the king's intentions which uh, led me to think about law more generally uh, as as a kind of power and i'm using that in a Pauline sense, like the principalities and power powers that are kind of suprahuman, not not uh, not divine, but suprahuman um, uh, forces that act in the world. Sometimes they're associated with demonic uh, demonic uh, personalities that are acting in the world, but I think they're also kind of suprahuman forces. That no one is in control of, uh, no no created thing is in control of, and yet affect us fads and uh, you know crowd manias and uh, and uh, those sorts of things are powers that that grip people and take over and do things that no individual has intended them for them to do. And it seems like like law has that kind of force force to it. And it's a legislation of various sorts that is passed with all kinds of good intentions that gets. Uh, twisted or moved in a direction that it was never intended to to do by, uh, never intended by the, by those who promulgated. Um, I think that's a, it's an interesting, for me, it was an interesting angle on law, which I think uh, I would, I, I would have thought previously of it simply as an instrument of political power rather than itself being a power that can control the, uh, and uh, that takes, that takes control of the political actors uh, or at least some political actors that um, that uh, it, it gets it gets out of their control and it loses their grasp.
3: I'd be interested to know what you guys think about this. Uh, it, it was something that occurred to me as we looked at the last um, chapter, and I, it's not yet sort of developed in my head as yet. But we have uh, in chapter twelve and verse ten have um, these words: "Many shall purify themselves." And you know, this is echoed in Revelation as well. This particular sentiment and make themselves white and be refined but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise shall understand um just strikes me as a very interesting thing It, it it almost sounds like you know this is the purpose of Daniel's um message and it's not necessarily um persuading but more polarizing um it reminds me of a statement in chapter two when daniel is i think he's praying and he he's saying that god gives wisdom to the wise and it almost sounds um unnecessary in a sense they've already got wisdom but it 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 feels like what these prophecies uh, are doing is um yeah is is polarizing there there is a further refining to those who are already gods and who have started to purify themselves already and yet a kind of Hardening and uh, almost just a you know, the the impure will continue being impure, you know. And, and um, I, I just wonder kind of what we're to make of that in the context of Daniel or, or, or perhaps in wider um contexts.
2: It does seem similar to Jesus' teaching concerning parables that, um, to the one who has more will be given, and the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. Mm. right
1: yeah i think too of uh i mean this is a a thought from cornelius van till and i he would cite the uh, parable the weeds and the tares and uh, the way that you have weed and tares mixed in a field but um indistinguishable but over time they become more distinguishable and they can be sorted at the end but they're not sortable early on so you have this kind of maturation ventil's point was you have this kind of maturation in both directions you have wheat maturing maturing as wheat not maturating but maturing as wheat and tares maturing as tares and each becomes why well, for ventil uh, more epistemologically self-conscious that's that would be the way he would, he would take it well whether we whether we want to go and make it a, an epistemological issue specifically or not uh, there's a kind of uh maturation i think too the way that Again, Jesus, uh, the the way that Jesus polarizes, polarizes Jews. And so by his teaching of proclamation of the kingdom and his teaching about the righteousness of the kingdom, that forces a decision uh, and it forces some to, uh, it forces you to decide whether you're going to uh, accept and pursue that righteousness or resist it. Uh, So he's a sign of opposition. Uh, the church is a sign of opposition to the book of Acts. And I think that kind of polarization which leads to an intensification on both sides of the uh, can lead to intensification on both sides of the uh, of the opposition. I think that's you know part of the uh, part of the effect of the proclamation of the gospel. and that in, in insofar as Daniel is a, uh, a a revelation of ultimately of the gospel, it's having the same kind of effect
3: right. and and Daniel, certainly is the kind of person to whom as anister was saying you know he, he was given um much and then more was given to him and and he went from greater and greater um responsibility in in babylon's kingdom and um i know you won't need convincing of this but it obviously brings home just the importance of churches discipling people and, and looking to kind of grow people who can um stand up um, in in the context of a difficult um, kingdom rather than kind of being too worried about sort of persuading people who actually have no interest in in receiving the wisdom of God in, in the first place. One thing I'll be interested to
2: hear your thoughts upon is how Daniel relates to a wider community of Jews, because apart from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, when they leave the scene, you don't really seem to have much of a community around him. He's very concerned with the destiny of his nation. But at the same time, he does not seem to be deeply embedded within um, Jewish circles. He's a very faithful um, individual practitioner of his faith, praying every single day on a regular basis. But where do you think the community of the exiles is in relationship to Daniel for most, much of this prophecy.
1: Uh, just to reinforce the point you're making, this is not an answer to the question, but um, yeah, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disappear. And in the last half of the book, uh, Daniel is receiving visions um, that he alone sees. I mean, we were told that at the beginning of chapter 10, he's got other people with him when the man dressed in linen first appears, but he's the only one who sees the vision and the others, uh, uh run away <laughs> when, when the vision starts. Uh, so, um, yeah, he's, that's an interesting sequence to me because it, he he's got some, uh, he's got a, at least the, the four, the four cornerstones, the four pillars of the Exili community are there at the beginning, but then it's like the other three disappear and you, you're left at the end with one cornerstone. You, i would expect the movement of daniel to be in the opposite direction as, in a sense that uh, it would move from as you have elsewhere you've got moses and then israel go through the same experience jesus and the apostles and so on but this seems to be moving in a kind of opposing direction where you start out with a small group of associates and then that gets trimmed down to a single visionary that's just that's just stating the problem that's not answering the question i think that's a really really interesting question
3: I mean, obviously it's only a guess, but I wonder if we're meant to see Daniel in the final chapters as plugged into a community who just aren't explicitly mentioned. I mean, we could think of Nehemiah and Ezra and initially we could get the impression that they're kind of just lone agents. And yet they're not Nehemiah receives word um, from various people who come from Jerusalem, talk to him about the state of the place. And both of them return to um, Jerusalem with huge numbers of people with them. And um, yeah, I, I wonder if we we are to just assume that they're part of a bigger community. I've always assumed that part of Daniel's motivation in chapter six is the example which he would set to the Jewish people at large in exile if he stopped praying in response to Darius's decree, because he, he does continue to pray in, in a visible way.
1: Yeah, and it's certainly the case of the various decrees of the kings are protections, not just for the specific individuals, like the decree at the end of chapter three, not just for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but uh, that that covers all of the Jews who are worshiping the God of Israel. So yeah, it's but uh, I think you're right, James, that we, we should assume that Daniel is in touch with that community, that he's a leader in that community. Uh, that still leaves a kind of uh, exegetical or literary question of why he's not shown in the midst of the community? what's what? Uh, why is it something that we have to assume rather than something that's depicted? I take it that that's uh, Alistair's question. Yes,
2: yeah, so I wonder also whether this is something that's more general about certain biblical apocalyptic literature. We have maybe something similar in the book of Ezekiel, where um, after a certain point, the other members of the exilic community are not so prominent, or um, in the book of Revelation where John is in a situation of exile and there's a context of solitude um, for his vision. I wonder whether there's something about that form of biblical prophecy that accentuates the um, process of the separation of that person. Um, They're set apart as an individual as um, maybe someone who's supposed to ascend to a height that separates them from others in order later to bring that news back to others. And so Daniel's message is for his people as in the case of um, Ezekiel or or John, but as in something like um, Moses ascending Mount Sinai, they have to do that alone in order that later they would be able to bring back word to others. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. My, uh, another um, uh, whimsical thought, maybe, maybe we're missing Daniel in his community because we, we don't have the apocryphal stories of Daniel in our Bibles. You know, uh, he's, uh, uh, Daniel and Susanna, uh, Bell and the dragon and those other stories have a more, more of a, more of a social context for Daniel than, uh, than our canonical. Stories. <laughs> Any other uh, thoughts you want to bring up?
2: I don't want. I don't want our series on Daniel to end with that comment. <laughs> Please. We should probably remark upon the importance of the Book of Daniel for um, New Testament thought and um, prophetic vision, because the Book of Daniel perhaps is among the most important parts of the background certainly in the book of Revelation, but also in the Olivet Discourse. So many of the um, elements of its prophecies are brought forward in that context. There are other things like the Son of Man. That's one of Jesus' most important sayings in the context of his trial before the high priest. The statement that he makes about himself, that hereafter you'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of glory. Um, In a number of these places, I think we get an indication of just how important the book of Daniel was for the um, scriptural imagination of the early church, for Jesus' self-understanding, and for that wider context into which they were speaking.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of The Theopolis Podcast.